0: But there was a man by the name of Samuel Chadwick. and He would gather ministers together and send them out to preach. And he says, I don't pray that God goes with you. Because God's in you if you're saved. And one of his children, he says, I pray the devil goes with you. Because if the devil goes with you, I know you're enough of a threat to the kingdom of darkness that he would attach himself to you and try to thwart your purposes. And I think what happens sometimes is when we're in spiritual warfare, we get so caught up in the tussle, we get so caught up in the fight that we forget why is Satan resisting us, why are we having the spiritual warfare? It's because on the other side of that warfare, on the other side of the fight, there is a battle and a treasure and, and, and stuff that the enemy is protecting that he doesn't want the people of God to get their hands on. What happens to us is we get so caught up in the fight that the fight begins to taint our heart and begins to change where we look. And we quit looking at God, where the victory is, and we begin to just only look at the battle. And we only focus in On the battle, and so what God is trying to do is to get us to not get so caught up in the battle and in the fight that we forget there's a treasure on the other side that God is going to give us the victory and that we're going to walk into. And so, and so I'm finding out that Satan's pretty, pretty crafty. He he's not he's not a dummy. He's been deceiving humanity for a long time. He knows what ticks our boxes, and he. The demonic realm watches us and they watch our patterns and they see how we act and they see our attitudes in certain places and they make notes of it and they chart it and then they say, oh, well, when he does that, then that happens. Okay, so if we can increase that, then we can probably increase this thing over here. And so they're always pulling levers and switches and different things. And so we've got to be aware of the things of the enemy that would come against us. We've got to be aware of the strongholds that are in our life and the pitfalls that we can fall into because what I've noticed about uh, myself is that many times I will fall into a trap that I have set. We like to make fun of Samson but how many times have I laid my head in the lap of something I had no business laying my head in? we tend to fall in our own traps. So the level of my life that I'm open and transparent to God and to others will be the level of my life that I am free. That's why what we always say, you're only as sick as your secrets. Because the only thing Satan can control me with is that which I'm afraid to confess before God and men. But that which I'm not afraid to confess between God and men, then I'm not bound by that anymore because Satan can't use guilt and pressure and fear to keep me down. And if you got some good Holy Ghost friends, you know what? Every time I've confessed a fault to my brother, do you know that they've always one-upped me? So man, they're going to think I'm bad if I tell them this. And I tell them and they go, you think that's bad? Here's what I did. And I'm like, whoa, I'm not so bad, right? Because that's what the people of God do. We're all products of grace. We're all products of grace. You're just a product of God's grace. You didn't read your Bible and study so much and become impressive. You're a product of God's grace. And if you like to read the Bible, that was God's gift of grace. If you like to pray, that was God's gift of grace. And when everything's grace, I'm no longer in a place of judgment where I'm judging everybody that I'm better than. And we have this feeling in the church that we've got this air of superiority that we can look down our nose at everybody else. And all that is is a stronghold from Satan to get us outside of grace and to get us thinking that our works have got us somewhere. That is good. (laughs) So good I didn't know that was in me. It's grace. It's grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. And so what we're trying to do is to tap into that grace and to go deeper in that grace and go deeper in that relationship with God so that we're set free so that we might reflect the image of God on the earth. That's our goal. That's what we want. Oh, so I was mowing the yard yesterday, and the grass isn't growing as fast. I think we're going to be good. I think I'm going to be mowing every other week now. Uh, so I was mowing. Uh, yeah, just a little side note there. Uh, so I was mowing my neighbor's yard, and I got by this pine tree on the, on the edge of his uh, property there, and I noticed a hole in the ground. I said, Huh, that's odd. So I did my circle around this tree. And uh, as I'm doing the circle, something felt like something pinched me on the back of my arm. I said, Oh! <laughs> Pinch me. You know, I'm by myself, so I don't have to be tough. I can just <laughs> let out a yell scream. I'm not worried about it. And then I felt something else. This time it was on my side. Oh, a little more intense. And then a third one, a little bit back here. Oh, and I lifted up my shirt and there's yellow jackets (laughs) swarming up under my shirt. So good thing they make kill switches when you jump off of a lawnmower. I haven't told my wife this further story because I didn't want her to hold it against me here. So it was way more embarrassing than the version you got. So I throw the handles off, got a zero turn, throw the handles off, I jump out and I just start running. And I notice they're up under, still up under my shirt, stinging me as I'm running. So I'm running across my neighbor's yard and I take my shirt off and I just start. <laughs> and I'm praying to God. I mean, I live in a respectable neighborhood. I'm praying, what happened to the pastor God? Running through the yard with a shirt off, doing it like a helicopter. <laughs> See, I didn't know there was something hidden that was a danger to me. There was a stronghold of yellow jackets. And people looking from afar couldn't tell because the problem was so small stinging me that they really couldn't tell what was going on either. All they could see is my reaction to the pain. All they could see was a guy acting crazy with his shirt off, trying to knock yellow jackets away. See, what Satan wants to do with his strongholds in our life is he wants to bury them and hide them so that they're in positions that would be unbeknownst to us or that would be in a place so painful we wouldn't want to go back there and deal with it. So he puts it in that kind of a place and then our pride kicks in and we build a wall around it and make it look like a spiritual uh, a spiritual um, structure and we put the bricks and the mortar around it so that nobody can get to that place and nobody can see that place because we don't want to be found out that we have a stronghold in our life. So if anyone gets close to that pain, all they see is a wall, an impressive structure And we can build it up with all kinds of stuff. We can build it up with good arguments of why we're not this way or that way. We can build it up with all kinds of stuff. We can build it up with good church attendance. We can build it up with servitude. We can build it up with a million different things, but it becomes a stronghold. And the thing about a stronghold is Is that you know the enemy's there, but you really can't see him. You know that beyond the wall, the enemy's there, but you don't know which part he is in. And this is what Satan wants to do. He wants to get in the places of our life that we allow him in, and he doesn't want to be seen. I think someone said one time the greatest trick Satan ever played on humanity was to convince them he didn't exist. That he wants to get in a place so strategic, so unbeknownst to us, so subtle, that it would almost look like he wasn't there. And when he digs in and gets into that place, because that's why Paul says, give no place to the devil, is that he's seeking, he's walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In other words, he can't devour anybody. He has to always ask for permission in order to come in. So that's what I've noticed about the spirit, of, uh, the spirit realm and the demonic realm is, is that they'll find places you've given them permission because they've got no power. Then once they get there, they try to act like they have all the power and you can't get rid of them. And that's what a defeated foe always does. They try to act like they've got more power than they do. <sighs> Better move on. See, onlookers couldn't see the enemy, they could only see the effects. And what is motivating people is generally not them, but a stronghold where the enemy has been able to bed down and hide. And every now and again, the enemy rises up behind that wall to cause chaos and then lays back down, leaving us to pick up the broken pieces of whatever thing that he animated us to do that time. That's why the Lord is always trying to give us a heavenly perspective. That's why Ephesians 2 says that we've been seated with Christ in heavenly places so that we don't get so uh, living in this here and now that we can't see the disguises of the enemy and the the finish line that's way up there. Jesus has seated us with him in heavenly places to remind us that we are seated with him because being seated isn't a place of victory. It means that I've won. The king isn't standing, the king is sitting. Why? Because everything's already under his feet. He's already worked out every victory. So he seated us there to say, hey, look, the victory is already yours. You're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. If you had quit fighting in your own strength and fight in the power and the grace that I provide, then you would have already won by now. Because why? Because you have already won. And so he's always trying to get our God. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places. He tells us in Colossians 3, don't set your minds on things below, but set your minds on things above. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who endured the cross, despising the shame, to be placed at the right hand of God. Revelation 4, come up here, John, and see what's going on and get a throne room perspective of what's going on. Revelation 11, come up here, John again and see the heavenly perspective and see what I'm doing Corinthians I has not seen nor ear heard neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him but by his spirit we have been known and brought into the knowledge of these things So, God's given us the Holy Spirit to live in us. So, the Holy Spirit goes at the throne of God, hears the conversation between Father and Son, and then reports back to us what the Father and Son have said about us. I'm just trying to tell you something that the fight is really unfair. We we live as if it's a fair fight. But the fight is so unfair it's funny. It, I mean it's comical how unfair the fight is. And thank God we've got the book of Acts because we get to see people, normal people like us, because if we just had the gospels, we'd say, Yeah, well, Jesus, you know, Jesus is Jesus all by himself. But Jesus gets these like knucklehead guys and they get filled with the Spirit, and then they're doing supernatural stuff, turning over cities, turning, turning everything upside down. And it's like, wait a second, a fisherman can do this. 90% of the first century church was illiterate. <laughs> That's why you see the apostles getting beat, and they're worshiping, coming out of there, getting beat. yeah. So why are you worshiping for? Why is that such a good thing? Oh, we were counted worthy enough to look at enough like Jesus that we would experience the same sufferings as him. <laughs> so they're worshiping when they're beat. They're worshiping when it's good. They have a prayer meeting and the whole church shakes. <laughs> Can you imagine what that prayer meeting must have looked like? God is trying to get us to shift our perspectives. Because if you ever notice something, you ever been up in an airplane, you can see for miles. Matter of fact, it doesn't even look like it should look, you think. There's like shapes here and shapes there and circles here and squares there, and you're like, whoa, what a perspective. So we have to be wise and keep a heavenly perspective. And we've got to learn what it is to do spiritual warfare. And I think we've been content to pray this prayer our whole life. God, take it from me. God, just take it. Here's the problem with that. If he just takes it, then you're not going to learn what it is to do spiritual warfare and what it is to walk on your own two feet. See, Jesus isn't just making, bringing us in as fathers and, or bringing us in as sons and daughters. He's bringing us in to be warriors too. So what Jesus would rather do is say things like this, greater works than these you'll do. But God, this guy is so demon possessed, he's rolling around the floor, foaming at the mouth. He's throwing himself into fire. Yeah, greater things than that I want you to do. I don't want you just to exalt me for the great things I've done. I want you to step into the DNA as a son and daughter of God. And I want you to begin to walk in the reality of Jesus Christ on the earth. We're created to be image bearers. To bear the image of God. So what a travesty when the reflection of the image that we're shooting into the earth is less than Jesus. And here's another thing. This is why it's so unfair. is because God wants to give you the grace to do it. He's not saying, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. He's saying... I've got enough grace for you to do this. So Jesus wants to empower us to be in the fight. Not be in a place where our only prayer life is, God, rescue me out of this thing I got myself in. Rescue out of me out of this thing I got myself in. Rescue me out of this thing. And that's okay. It's okay. But there's a point to where we've got to go from infancy to where we've got to go to being a toddler. Like, I don't get mad at an infant for, you know, wearing a diaper. Like, I don't say, man, Abigail, you need to grow up. I embrace the season that she's in, but with the expectation that with growth, she's going to come out of that season and into the new season that is appropriate for her age. And so really what strongholds and dealing with that is about, and that's why it's so practical, is it's really just about growing up. It's to get to the next stage God's calling you to. You're a baby, take the next step to being a toddler. You need to be walking a little bit. Not very impressively, but you need to start walking. The next stage of young adults. And John maps it out for us. He says, "Children," he says, "Young men, young women." It says older men, older women. I mean, he gives the progression for it in 1 John. And so he's calling us, God is calling us into stages of maturity. And if I stop dealing with myself and my stuff at a certain level, I'm going to stick. And what happens when I get stuck and I get in a rut, which is really just a grave kicked out on both ends, if I get stuck in a rut... I suddenly begin to see the progress of others that I should be past as an enemy to my soul. And I lose my war against Satan and I begin to war against those who are stepping past me. Because I'm not willing to deal with my stuff, it's got to be their fault that they're progressing. So I'll create doctrines and religions that keep me stuck here and keep me happy about being here, and make everybody else the problem. We better get into the scriptures. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 22. I love this scripture. It says, a wise man went up against the city of the mighty and brought down the stronghold in which they trust. Get this, a wise man went up against the city and brought down the stronghold in which they trust. So there's a nugget here. What is a stronghold? Anything that we trust more than Jesus in our life. This is why it's practical. Anything I'm trusting more than Jesus is suddenly a stronghold that is hiding behind the city wall in a place where the enemy can bed down and cause fear, anxiety, and animate me to get me to do all kinds of things that are outside of the new nature that God has given me. So God says, A wise man, notice he doesn't say a mighty army. It's a wisdom thing. He doesn't say a mighty army tears down the strongholds. He says, A wise man acknowledges the city, takes a look at the landscape, and says, There's the weak spot. It's just like when a war is won, they don't give credit to the infantry. Credit is generally given to the general that was in charge who wasn't in the battle. Because it takes strategic tactics in order to take down a stronghold. It takes a strategic wisdom given by the Holy Ghost to look at the city that is our life and to say, there is an area of weakness. I'm going into that place and to tear down that stronghold in my life. And when we begin to release ourselves from the strongholds that are in our own life, we'll begin to tear down the strongholds in the culture. And the first thing we want to do is try to tear all the strongholds in the culture down. And we ain't got the strongholds out of our own life. If Christianity is anything, it's individual responsibility through relationship with Jesus to deal with your stuff. And not project it onto everybody else and what they ought to be doing and how they ought to be doing this or that. So Jesus said, don't throw your pearls out before the swine. They'll trample the pearls and they'll trample you. Why? Because they don't understand value. Somebody doesn't value you and you're going to throw pearls out all day? That's why Jesus says that you're running around with tweezers trying to get specks out of people's eyes. But there's a log. <laughs> the Greek word for the log in the eye is the same thing that they would use for structures. Beams that would hold the weight of an entire structure. So do you get the picture? And the issue is that if there's something that I readily see in the life of someone else, then that's an indicator that that's an issue and a blind spot I've got and maybe not the issue with them. Because I'm looking through the lens of the log, all I can see is specks. It's like the person of the log in their eye saying, all I see is wood. (laughs) Well... Jesus says, once you've gotten the plank out of your eye, you can begin to see clearly and look through the perspective, not of a perspective of a plank, but suddenly you can see clearly what is actually going on in the lives of other people. So what Jesus is saying when he says, judge not, lest you be judged, what he's saying is, be as ruthless as a judge with yourself as you are with other people. And we tend to give other people not many passes, but when it comes to us, boy, well, we can grab a hold of the horns of the altar and ask for grace. I'm going boldly to the throne room of grace, but that guy that hurt me back there, I'm not dealing with him. That person over there, God, give me great grace. Pour your grace out on me. That when it comes to strongholds, it's it's a subtle thing inside of ourself. Satan wants to get to control our life, to keep us in fear, to keep us from stepping out, to keep us from stepping into our identity with God, to keep us from seeing who God really is, to keep us so put out with other people that we blame them for our relationship with God. And when you stand before God, you're not going to be able to bring other people up there with you. If you do that, then you're acting like the advocate or the lawyer. And if you're trying to defend yourself, then Jesus is no longer your advocate. That's the mystery to me in Matthew 7, and lots has been said about it. But that's the mystery to me, is that people would stand before God, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And they said, oh, we did many mighty works. We cast out devils. We prophesied. We preached to God. We did all these things. Can you imagine bragging to Jesus about what you did in the grace of God to Jesus who gave you the grace? People say, how can they be lost? Look at the miracles they did. I'm like, how can they be saved? They're bragging to Jesus about what they've done. I know this is heavy, guys. I hope... hope. I don't want to be a know-it-all up here and all this stuff. Man, I'm, I'm in the battle, too, with you. I, I, just, I just get passionate about this stuff. There's enough to keep me busy, but God's called me to preach to you, so that's just what it is, okay? See, strongholds are tricky. You know the enemy's in there, but where is he at? And what's the impressive wall that I've built up to keep God and others out? It can be a wall of hurt, unforgiveness, rejection. But the idea is to build such a big wall that you would never dare try to come in. The stronghold is a place where the enemy can hide but not be seen. And this is where the weird part of humanity comes. Why try to hide something that's killing me and sabotaging my life? And I hate to use this example, but it's just the best thing I can come up with in 14 years of ministry, things that I've seen. But it's kind of like the person that's abused in a relationship, and they keep going back. You're like, what does that? That doesn't even make sense. But the issue is, for the risk of being loved, I'll buy the lie that this is love, so I won't have to live in the reality and wonder if there is real love out there for me. So I empower the lie and make excuses for the fear of not experiencing the real thing if I get out of that. And so what happens is is that we get in these places of our life and we build up impressive strongholds and the time goes on and they almost begin to seep into our soul as an identity. And then freedom becomes scary at that point because how do I act free when all i know known is bondage and slavery? <laughs> what will I do with myself out here in a place of freedom when I've never been there before? And what will I do when it does come? And so fear always empowers the lie. That tells me to stay and quit going forward. Always. That's how the demonic realm works. I love what James says in James chapter 3, verse 13. This is cool. Listen to this wisdom, right? The wise man tears down the strongholds. The supernatural wisdom of God to tear down the lies of The enemy. Now look what James defines wisdom as. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, he should show his works done in the gentleness that wisdom brings. What does does wisdom bring? Gentleness. Okay, so we're getting some clues here. When real wisdom comes... His work's done in the gentleness that wisdom brings. Now watch this. So this means that I can have wisdom, but if I'm not in the right spirit, then it's no longer wisdom. It becomes a truth that, becomes, that I use as an offense to um, use against people that would then become demonic. So the truth done in the wrong spirit is actually demonic because it aims at manipulating people to do what you want them to do. And the gentleness that wisdom brings. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfishness in your hearts, in other words, if this is the lens and what you're operating in and this is your heart, do not boast and tell lies against the truth. So the truth really has nothing to do with the truth. It has to do with the spirit that you bring the truth in. So you can have a head full of scripture and a belly full of sin and never know it. That's why knowledge puffs up, not just demonic knowledge or evil knowledge. No, you can have enough scripture to empower you to think that you're actually spiritual, but you don't walk in humility, you don't walk in gentleness, you don't walk in self-control, you don't walk in temperance, you don't walk in love, you don't walk in any of the gentle virtues that the Holy Spirit brings about as the fruit of our life, and you stand there as righteous, boasting in truth, but yet having no love. And calling it spiritual. And James says, if you've got that, don't boast and tell lies against the truth. Don't use the truth if you haven't dealt with your own heart. Verse 15, such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. So here we see how the progression starts. It starts first, earthly. Earthly. We think when it comes to demonic realm influencing us, we think that it starts off with like this big super warrior demon and he comes in and he slaps you around and he just enters your body. That is not how the demonic works. The demonic is way more subtle than that. What the demonic does is get you earthly. Get you thinking earthly so that then you make a decision That's carnal. And through that decision of carnality, you've now sold an action that has the possibility to become a habit. So then the possibility of the habit, when you begin to keep walking in that, suddenly becomes a habit and now you're doing it without thinking. Once you do it long enough while you're not thinking, suddenly you've given access to the demonic to come in because you've handed every bit of authority and choice that you have over to them. So now they can come in through that area and begin to animate you and make you do all kinds of crazy things. All predicated on decision that you made that was earthly, it became earthly to sensual or natural, It become second nature, and then it entered into a demonic realm by a decision that you made in your past. We can all go back and look to a decision that we made in our past that opened the door. We like to give it virtuous names in order that the demon can stay around, but that's what a stronghold does. Right? Something that's a sin, we give it a virtuous name and we exalt it in culture and then suddenly, oh, yay! So then nobody can touch it because now it's been exalted as normal. And it's demonic. (sighs) For where there is jealousy and selfishness There is disorder and evil, every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, accommodating, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and not hypocritical. We were expecting wisdom to be like a jackhammer there, weren't we? I'm going to take this wall down. Now, it's actually a lot more simple. It's peaceful. It's pure. It's gentle. It's yielding. It surrenders. It's accommodating. <sighs> And the fruit that consists of righteousness is planted in peace among those who make peace. (sighs) So you're telling me wisdom's to walk in peace? Yeah. Yeah. Peace with yourself, peace with God, peace with others. Now you can see why strongholds rarely get torn down. Wisdom that wants to just be right is not from above. We can all line our facts up against another set of facts and fight all day long. But has that ever brought about any progress? Strife, evil, brings about a lot of things, but godliness is really not one of them. The demonic wants to capture you and manipulate you and trigger you to keep you from walking in the humbleness and peace of Christ. See, when we want to just be right, that means we really just want to be superior. And Christ washes feet. He washes feet. Just the feet of those who curse him, and I want to get there. I want to get there, and I don't want to walk in offense, and I don't want you to walk in offense. Because if you walk in offense, you'll miss the glory of God in your life, and you'll die an old curmudgeon. That never knew what it was to experience the glory of God. The goodness of God. Our Christ is so tender, He's so gentle, He's so mild. Young people, God is for you. And I wish somebody would have told me that coming up. I was told everything but that God was for me. Seems like that's good news. I was told what not to do and not to do. you know I was told all that stuff, and that's good. I'm glad that foundation's in me. It's helped me along the ways to miss a lot of snags in the road that I could have hit. But I wish with that advice, somebody would have just said, man, God is so for you. And young people, he's for you. You don't have to give away your youth to go see what the world has to offer and then come back in later on. You can start with God right now, and he's got grace and patience with you, and he will help you. He will be with you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's for you. We've got to drop our attitudes of superiority and take the position of humble Christ because we're all products of the unmerited favor of God. The goodness and grace of God. So why would we project our standard onto other people and try to teach them to earn the favor of God? That we would be the grace of God right where we're at. I got a background in philosophy, and so some people used to try to get me to pull, pull me into their fights. They'd be on a rant on Facebook with their atheist buddies. They'd start tagging me in the comments. <laughs> but I can't lie, though. When I was kind of new, I, may I loved getting in there and fighting them. <laughs> But I learned that debate really doesn't ever get you anywhere. It just brings out the fact that we like to fight. It does something for me, but it does nothing for the other person. So it becomes a selfish act in itself, not based on the reconciliation of God, but based upon my own want and need to be right. So I've learned over time to be quick to listen and try to be slow to speak. I don't always pass that test, but I try. So what does it look like to be reconciliatory in a place of argumentation? I was counseling with a young man one time who had been through tremendous horror. I mean, I, I can't even recount it to you. <sighs> Tremendous pain. And so the first part of our conversation is really him just railing. If God was this, why this? If God was this, why? Oh, there is no, oh, just, just anger, 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 and I just listened And when he was finished, I said, Can I ask you a question? There's a reason why Jesus always asked questions. Because we can't really get to the root of things until we ask questions. Jesus rarely answered a question with an answer, he usually answered a question with another question that really got to the heart of where the question was coming from. So I said, Can I ask you a question? If God's not real, why are you so mad? (laughs) Why are you so mad? You're mad because you know it's not right. And I can't tell you why that happened. But I can tell you this, is that God doesn't sit up in a castle somewhere removed from his subjects, but that God becomes a man and is born of an unwed teenager. He's born in an animal cave. He grows up poor. Never does anything wrong and he is murdered horribly and and given the death of a slave. The worst crime you could possibly have. But he rose from the dead. And God vindicated him and ascended to the right hand of God. And we're waiting for him to come back and right every wrong said, I can't tell you why those things happened, but there's a reason why it bothers you is because it bothers God and he's sharing his emotions with you so that you, so that you know how he feels about it too. And it's okay for you to be mad. His jaw hit the floor. He said, I thought you were going to fight with me. Nope. I just want to be reckless. How do I say it? Reconciling truth that doesn't care about being right, but cares enough about you that I can introduce you to the king. countdown. We're getting there. Uh, let's read this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll, we'll kind of come to a close here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And This is Paul for through chapters 10 to 13. He, he really tries to establish his authority this whole time. People have come against Paul With arguments, he's got like seven different kinds of enemies. He's got, uh, well, we just just don't have time to go into it, but he's got a lot of people trying to attack his personality and who he is and what he's trying to do and what he tried to do in the church in Corinth. And so when Paul showed up, he showed up really unimpressive, the Bible says, that he was um, just very unassuming. He wasn't a great speaker like Apollo. He was, uh, but he wrote powerful letters. So their argument was, you write these weighty letters, but then when you show up, you really look pretty unimpressive. Well, that had to take a, some, some humbleness to even handle that. A church that you have planted and given birth to is now turned on you saying that you're not impressive enough to lead them. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, appeal to you personally... By the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I am who I am who I am who I am, meek when present among you. And here he gets into that, but I am full of courage towards you when away. This was the accusation about him. He was weak in person, but then wrote a heavy letter when he left. Verse two. Now, when I ask that when I am present, I may not have to be bold with the confidence that I will dare to use against some who consider us to be behaving according to human standards. Verse 3, For though we live as human beings, we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not human weapons, but are made powerful by God. For tearing down strongholds, we tear down arguments and every arrogant obstacle that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive, I love how the Net Bible puts it, to make it obey Christ. So Paul says, I'm not going to get down in the mud with you because that would be human standards. I'm going to use the weapons of my warfare, which are humility, Gentleness, kindness, patience, long-suffering, temperance, Holy Ghost. I'm going to use these things that seem not very powerful according to human standards, but God has ordained or made them powerful that this is the only way we tear down strongholds and we tear down the things of the enemy that that would come up against us. And that every thought contrary to that gentle nature... Any thought contrary to the goodness of the mercy of God, I turn it as a captive, I take it captive, and then I turn it into a thought that begins to work for me. Give me that rope there behind you. Don't play yet, Justin. I I got a little bit more to go. Josh, come up here. Grab a chair. You're going to need a chair. I'm about to take you captive. What happens with our thoughts many times is that in our thoughts, we pray for God to take them away. A thought doesn't disappear. A thought isn't going away. If God was to take away the thought, guess what happens? There's then a vacuum there, and something worse could come in and fill the place of that thought. So God gives us a position to increase and grow in the knowledge of God gradually. So he doesn't just take things from our life. God, take this uh, addiction. Take this, this. Take that, that. If he does, and you don't have the character to walk the thing out, seven demons worse than those would come in and begin to overtake you. So he works our deliverance in a process so that as we mature, our freedom and maturity brings us into new places of God gradually many times. So he says to take the thought captive. He doesn't tell the thought to get out. He tells the thought, you better stay because I'm not done with you. You better stay. So the devil says, you're not loved. Your dad's sorry and you're sorry too. You're never coming out of generational ties. God doesn't love you. Look how much you messed up in your life. And the enemy comes in with those thoughts. What we start to do is we start to preach the gospel to our own thoughts. And we take those thoughts captive and we tell those thoughts to stop. And we say, I'm fearful and wonderfully made. In my mother's womb, I was knitted together by God himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life for if I confess my sins he's faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all 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 unrighteousness what does that mean in the Greek all unrighteousness that that I can begin to preach the gospel that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and those who walk according to the spirit of life and not according to the law of death for God has done what what the flesh could not do because it was weakened by sin and that he becomes sin and he condemns sin in the flesh so in order that we might become the righteous requirement of God. I've been abased and I've been abound. And everywhere in all things, I've learned both to have a little and have a lot. But I know this, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That I'm born of God and he who is born of God overcomes the world. That I'm the head and not the tail. I'm above and not beneath. So once I've held that thought captive enough, that thought gets transformed. That's why the Bible tells us this. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed to the mind. See, your spirit can be saved and your mind be a mess because you don't got the word down in it. You've got one weapon in the armor of God and it's the Spirit of God, the Word of God. Can you quote scriptures like that? I'm not bragging, I'm just saying. If you don't have an arsenal of scriptures, that's why you're struggling. And you're allowing the thought to live in your head and you're not taking it captive. But once you preach long enough to that thought, suddenly that thought becomes redeemed thoughts. And suddenly, naturally... I don't go there anymore. I go to the place of preaching the gospel to those bad thoughts. I start quoting scripture to those bad thoughts. I start, man, you can Google scriptures on anxiety. Memorize five or six and start using them on the devil. You can, I mean, people ask me all the time, what's this, what's that? I'm like, man, don't you got Google? Come on, man, that's how I learn stuff. And once that thought's redeemed that thought then will start working for you. And suddenly, suddenly, you're no longer having to keep the thoughts captive. By nature, they go to that place and start preaching. So then you're here in the middle of a temptation. Suddenly, Scripture No temptation has overtaken me except that which is common to man. But God is able and has made a way of escape. Come on now. That's the word of God. I'm not just making up stuff to say up here. It's the word of God. And if you'll get it down in your heart, you can take those thoughts captive. And you can turn them back on the devil. You can turn them back on the devil. Would you stand to your feet? Just begin to worship. Just begin to invite his presence in. You don't have to wait for a song to worship. God's about to set them free. He's about to set some people free. Because he's just that good, it's what he does. See, we've got to get God's thoughts On our side, and when we start thinking God's thoughts, we'll start thinking like God thinks about towards us. We got to replace the lies with the truth of God. I always start at the cross. If you're feeling pretty uh, crummy and and shameful, always go. What motivated Jesus to be on the cross? Isaiah 53 says this: When he makes an offering of guilt, he shall see his offspring. (laughs) That when he was on the cross, he saw you worshiping through the corridors of history. 2,000 years later, he saw you in Hot Springs, Arkansas, raising your hands and worshiping. him. he saw it. He saw every nation, tribe, and tongue unified under the tuning fork that is tuned to every need in humanity. And that is Jesus. And he saw them worshiping worldwide throughout the corridors of time when he was on the cross. loves you. Would you close your eyes? For every negative stronghold there's a powerful way to surround it with the opposite truth from God. If you're struggling with depression surround it with hope. If you're struggling with a stronghold of rejection surround it in that you're accepted in the beloved of Abba. If you are struggling with a stronghold of unresolved anger, surround it with forgiveness. If you're struggling with a stronghold of fear, surround it with the knowledge of God's love. If you're struggling with a stronghold of failure, surround it with the victory, looking at Christ's resurrection that has made you victorious. Once you've identified that stronghold, you need to get some scripture and start preaching to that thought and start tearing down every argument of Satan that would hold you back from the goodness of God and the calling of God that's on your life. Let's pray.